Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. It only takes a couple of folks who are sowing negativity in your business to really change the whole culture. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I'm thrilled that you've chosen to spend another hour of your life with me, this time with an amazing entrepreneur I'm excited to bring to you. Today's guest has been building an iconic solar business since before many of you were even born. Gary Gerber founded Sunlight and Power in Berkeley, California in 1976. And he's built one of the most trusted brands in the California solar market. It was humbling and educational to finally sit down with Gary and chat about his four plus decades of experience. I learned the value of leaning in long term when you've got a good idea and why selling his company to his employees after 40 years was a sound business decision. Gary also told me his secret to success. Hey, when you're done checking out this one, will you please go over to mysuncast.com where you'll be able to find 150 plus other inspiring and influential leaders' stories. But for now, let's tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Today, we have a true solar pioneer. We are back with the Solar Pioneer series. Mr. Gary Gerber is the founder and president of Sunlight and Power. He has been in this industry longer than many of you listeners have been on the planet. And his company has served more customers than many of you have had the privilege to meet. So I am really eager and excited today to have a chance to interact with someone who has seen the breadth and depth of the growth of our industry. He's certainly up there with other icons like Sam Vanderhoof who have been on the show. It is a true pleasure to have someone here who's built a company that now has been around for 40 plus years. Gary, welcome to Suncast. Thanks very much, Nico. Happy to be here. So Gary, I imagine if we go all the way back, you know, one of the things that you and I were laughing about is that this is, in fact, your career. For those who don't know much about your background, I'd love for you to explore it with us. But you've been doing this virtually since grad school. Could you tell me a little bit about how you first got involved in or introduced to solar power and when and how you decided that this is where you wanted to focus what became your entire career? I'd be happy to. Yeah, I, I remember it very well. Not many classes in college that I, I can say I, I remember being in that particular class at that moment, but this is one that, that I do remember, and it was uh, it was an unusual class. It was about energy uh, in general, and it was taught by a guest lecturer from, of all places, Stanford. He was talking about the big picture, the big geological picture of energy and where energy comes from and how much there is left and just talking about coal and oil and gas, you know, renewables as well, solar and wind, et cetera, geothermal. 
And he kind of went through each of these energy sources in terms of how much is left, how many years. And it became very clear to me as he was talking. Now, this is probably 1973. As he was talking about these things, I was just getting this very clear picture that the fossil fuel side of things made no sense to me as just thinking about my future. You know, what do I want to do the rest of my life? Do I, do I want to jump onto that bandwagon? Do I want to go down that blind alley? Because to me, that looks like it's headed nowhere. And uh, then, you know, started talking about solar. Wind, of course, is, is an outgrowth of solar. So solar is really the pure energy source that is essentially unlimited. And that's the moment it came to me that that's what I want to do. That, that's what has a future. That kind of set me in that direction. I ended up taking the first uh, solar energy class ever taught at Cal by Marshall Merriam. And eventually I was teaching assistant for that class in my master's uh, program. So I, I stayed with it while I was also, my specialty was uh, thermal energy. So solar thermal is what I was, was actually training myself to understand and do. And you're born and raised in the Bay Area, is that right? Yeah, I'm a local guy who was raised in Walnut Creek, just maybe 20 miles away from UC. I was actually going to UC when I was still in high school. There was a special program that allowed a couple of high school students from each local high school to go and take a, a couple of courses at Cal, and I was fortunate enough to be selected for that. So, you know, when I graduated high school, I was literally already in college, and it was kind of a no-brainer for me to stay at Cal, which had you know, one of, if not the top engineering programs in the country anyway. So that was a pretty obvious choice for me. We've seen a lot of transformation and you've been at the, at the heart of effectively the solar industry since its earliest days. Since before it was an industry. I mean, I would never have described it as an industry when I started. Yeah, yeah. The industry in the U.S. really wouldn't look anything like an industry until late 80s, early 90s. Is that right? And even that was a cottage industry. Yeah, it actually had an interesting and unfortunate uh, stoppage <laughs> in the mid 80s. So we were growing, like my company, for example, I think by the early 80s, say 83, 84, we probably had 25 or 30 employees. We we're doing a lot of solar hot water and solar pool heating systems. We we're doing combo space heating, spa heating all of it solar thermal and that all came to an abrupt end in 85 86 when uh, reagan essentially showed his interest in solar by yanking carter's solar system off the white house and when uh, uh in the state of california governor duke majin eliminated the tax credits at the state level which had been also eliminated at the federal level by reagan so we lost about 95% of the industry at that point. Between 85 and 2000 is what I call the solar doldrums. You know, those of us decided to stay in the business, you know, maybe it's just my own lack of imagination to figure out some other way to make a living. I, I couldn't imagine doing anything else, so I, I stayed with it. But, you know, we were servicing systems. We weren't doing hardly any new installations at all. We got involved in solar passive work. We, I got involved. I am a B-licensed general contractor. So we actually designed and built several solar homes from the ground up between 85 and 2000. So we kept busy doing solar, but, but solar of a more passive design 
type of solar. Before we get into too far in the deep, you, you mentioned we, and obviously you've been running a company for 40 plus years. There's a lot of, there's a lot wrapped up in we. Back in the early days, it was you and your wife and maybe a, a couple of others. Take me to that moment, that inception moment of sunlight and power. Was it in, in grad school, as I recall? So I was unmarried at the time in my graduate master's program. Uh, I was essentially done with my master's degree, but I had a project that I had to do in order to complete the degree. And the project, of course, was in solar. And I chose a project that was a bit, as I tend to do, I was a bit ambitious. It wasn't working out well for me. So I was starting to get really disinterested in, in the project I had chosen to do. I was teaching assistant for the for Marshall Merriam's class, so I was doing a graduate study class uh, that I was teaching, and that class ended. And on the last day of the class, almost serendipitously, I don't remember giving it nearly enough deep thought. <laughs> I just said to the class, "Hey, anybody want to start up a solar company with me? Raise your hand." And um, turns out, two people in my class raised their hands. Those became two of my three partners. We hooked up with a company called Interactive Resources in Point Richmond, which is an architectural design firm that was pioneering themselves in solar design for homes. And they were having a really hard time finding anybody out there willing and able to build the solar projects that they were designing because they were these designs were you know, like putting a, a metal roof on a house and dribbling water down it underneath some fiberglass and then collecting it in a storage tank and pumping it around the house. Nobody was, you know, builders were not interested or was scared to death of trying to do something like that. So we got started working with them to actually execute their designs. There was a, an intern at Interactive Resources that said, hey, I'd like to join you guys too. So we ended up with four of us originally in Point Richmond. If I'm wrong, correct me, but it seems like in the mid-70s, certainly 70s, 80s, 90s was the heyday for solar thermal. Your specialty in particular was thermal energy and, and thermal engineering or, or uh, something to that effect. But I don't recall there being manufacturers of solar thermal panels as far back as the 70s. How, how did that work for you? It worked not well at all for us. Well, I guess, I mean, we ended up designing and building our own solar collectors from scratch is basically the, w the way it started, which I was actually very well prepared for because my heat transfer studies, you know, did teach me about fin efficiencies and thermal transfer through metal. So I was able to do the calculations necessary to determine how to design a tube and fin solar collector. Amazingly, the calculations actually were pretty much correct. And so, you know, we now have lots of rules of thumb about how things should work, but back then we didn't. So we basically invented the rules of thumb. So we were building very crudely. We were building uh, solar collectors with uh, redwood frames because we didn't have any ability to, to work in metal and, and we couldn't extrude metal. I mean, we had no money, so we were just, you know, working with what we, we had available. For example, using um, used or, or surplus uh, tempered glass from sliding glass doors to make our, our solar glazing. And then fitting it into a custom-built mitered wood redwood frame with a custom-built tube and fin copper plate behind it. Painted it up and 
put some insulation behind it and voila, we had a solar collector, which is essentially, except for some of the materials like the wood, it's essentially the same as they're currently made today. Well, that begs the question, especially since you've been around in continuous existence, uh, possibly the longest in the U.S. as a solar contractor. Do you still have original systems that you are still maintaining that you built back in the 70s? Yes. I'm not sure how far back they go. My first system, of course, was for my parents uh, in the house in Walnut Creek, and it cost $1,000, and there was a 10% federal tax credit, so it cost them $900. It was a lot of money back then, but that went that worked until um, the family sold the house, so that probably worked for 20 years. We still get calls from people that we installed systems for 30 years ago, and we do what we can to keep them working if they're, you know, if they're still fundamentally good. Uh, we hate to, to, to decommission uh, one of the older systems for sure. But yes, we've got, we've got systems, certainly from the 80s. I'm not sure about if, if we have anything left from the 70s or not. Well, I imagine, as you said, it was expensive and uh, nothing's changed in the, in the, in the vernacular and the jargon for folks getting into solar uh, these days. Everyone still thinks it's expensive despite the dramatic change that you've seen over time. But how back in the 70s and 80s did, as you put it, um, you guys didn't have any money. How did you guys put food on the table while you were waiting on the industry to sort of stabilize or take off? How did you make money in those early days? Well, uh, of course, we had the projects that Interactive Resources was feeding us, starting to build up a network. That was, of course, early adopters. Word does get around somehow. So we got we got some business coming in, but I have to give mostly credit to Interactive Resources for keeping us alive for the first few years. I have a long history of not taking a paycheck, and we weren't taking paychecks back then. So it turns out one of the one of the two hands that went up in my class was was Mark Gordon, who didn't even belong in the class. He wasn't a student. He was just he found out about solar. He said, that's cool. So he sat in on the class. So he's, as you might imagine, well, he became our sales guy. Right. You know, no limits. There, there are no rules. That's my sales guy. Right. And he had he had figured out a way for him to make a living was to he, he made a connection with a wholesale cheese supplier in San Francisco and he was he was delivering wholesale cheese around the city to restaurants and businesses and he said you know it's wide open in the East Bay Gary why don't you want you be the East Bay guy so I for like a year and a half or two I was delivering wholesale cheese. Uh, around the Bay Area for like two days a week. And the rest of the time I was working on solar. Amazing. I never would have guessed, Gary, you were a cheese delivery guy and as a side hustle to keep SLP alive. What else about those early days stands out to you, uh, certainly in contrast with the way the industry sort of functions today? Is there anything that you find remarkable just about how the industry scaled or grew that you'd want to pontificate on? So many things are different. Like I said earlier, it, it wasn't really an industry at all. We were building collectors by hand. In the late 80s, Larry Newton down on the peninsula created a company called Sunburst Solar. And he had a factory background. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but he certainly knew all about extruding metals and building things in a factory. So he he actually decided to start building solar collectors. So probably by 78 or so, we were able to buy solar collectors on the market. And that's when 
For example, that's when Solar Depot was founded in 78. So they were starting to distribute products. So, so it was started to look like a real industry, but until at least a couple of years after we started, there was, it wasn't an industry at all. And there was no, there was no, well, Calcia actually started in, I think, 78. I'm not sure if it was 76 or 78. You started to have some of the, some of the manufacturers popping up. Manufacturers and the trade organization began and that really started networking. So that's when we started getting real, in my opinion, because now you've got a trade organization, you've got representation in Sacramento people getting together socially and business-wise. So that's when it really started to coalesce, as far as I'm concerned, as a, as a nascent industry. Of course, it was all low-key. You didn't see any suits and ties ever. You know, I think the probably the biggest contrast I would make is looking at SPI today with tens of thousands of people, many of them in suits and ties, and remembering the earliest days of that organization of, of CIA National, uh, those first few meetings uh, could probably have happened in my office, you know, <laughs> in terms of the yeah. number of people in the industry in the early days. Well, I want to make a clarification for listeners who maybe are, when Gary mentions collector, he's referring to hot water collectors. And as we've mentioned a couple of times, hot water collectors were by and large, they were the solar industry for the better part of uh, the last century. Gary, do you recall the first time that you held a solar PV panel in your hand? No, I can't say that I actually remember that. Um, They were, of course, around in the 70s, just as cells and then as very small modules. And I do remember very distinctly some of the flexible modules. We started getting involved in PV, you know, probably as, as early as almost anyone else, somewhere in the late 70s, when people needed electrical power and the... Uh, Arco Solar came came along. Probably Arco Solar would be the first cells that I actually would have would have handled or, or modules I would have handled. And they were like an I remember like an eighteen water that had these half half cell uh, moon moon shape half cells built around uh, in the frame. You know, we were doing PV for cabins and RVs and boats. You know, that that's that was really the market back then. So it's just very small, mostly DC direct. So it was probably in the late 70s that I first got my hands on it. But, it, you know, we were in an urban environment. We're not up in the, you know, up in the hills. Uh, you know, you've probably seen the Solar Roots movie. That was not our market. We were in the city here in Berkeley. Uh, we moved to Berkeley in 81, actually. Our customers were mostly, you know, people who could afford an RV or a boat or a cabin in the woods who were generally the higher end, again, early adopters. And they had a need because they had no other way to get power where they were. So it was a a very much a cottage industry, the PV side of things, even more of a cottage industry than the solar thermal was. When do you remember the industry as we might consider it an industry today really taking off? What were the first vestiges and first signs for you that it was it was going to be a thing that you've, I have to, I have to imagine it, you know, you are a couple of decades in at that point, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I hadn't thought about that, but I do remember very distinctly. I heard that one of my competitors had hired someone who was there to sell PV to the customer base. And that was like mid nineties. And I remember thinking that's nuts. You know, there's no market 
for for PV in in our area here. I mean, they were out in Concord or and, and similar to Berkeley. It's like who is going to buy these hugely overpriced electrical devices that are just providing electricity that they already have? We had no interconnection, uh, so you couldn't connect them to the grid. That didn't exist. The inverters were only available with batteries, so they were strictly off-grid systems. That was all that was uh, approved and available at the time. And I just thought, okay, you know, you guys are a few years ahead. I understand that. I've been there. But good luck to you because you're going to have a really hard time, you know, and you're going to spend a lot of money and not make any money off of that business until it gets to a, a, you know, to a, a point where it can actually make sense. And then when it actually started making sense was 98, which was when the two things happened. Net metering law was in effect, which meant you could now finally sell back to the grid. Then the SGIP program, the, the original solar rebate program, began funding. About $50 million got funded for over four years, starting in 98, I believe it was. I think what really sort of kicked us into high gear was Y2K. For those that don't remember that, <laughs> young enough, <laughs> the year 2000 was the year that the world was going to end because of COBOL <laughs> and the fact that, 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 um, the computers were not recording the year in four digits. They were recording it in two digits. And then suddenly when you get to a zero, zero, everything would go haywire. People say, well, that was, that was not real. It didn't happen. Uh, it would have happened. The millions of dollars were spent on avoiding the true disaster that that would have been. And if, that, if those millions had not been spent to avoid it, it would have been a disaster. And a lot of people don't really recognize that. But having been there, in fact, our largest system in the year 99 was for one of the co-authors of the COBOL language. He lived up in Occidental, which is coincidentally where I live now, um, which is a small town about 65 miles north of, of, of Berkeley. And he had this property up there and he was hunkering down. He said, Gary, you've got to come up and put in wind generators and solar for us because Y2K is coming and I'm scared. And he's the guy that wrote the language. So, you know, when I heard that from him, I realized that this is a real problem. So we put in a nice big system for him up there and several other individuals for their own reasons felt like they, they really needed to have this, you know, they were looking at Armageddon basically, and they had to have their own power supplies. So those were battery based grid connected systems that we were building in, um, 99 and and then things started really taking off i mean we were when you're starting from such a small number the growth doesn't look like much if you look at the graphs you probably only start to see anything that you know on a on a on a graph of solar sales probably only start to see any activity maybe in 2004 2005 where things start to, to happen but things were growing in my world very quickly before that because we went from zero to whatever. For us, a few hundred thousand dollars was a big year. So, you know, that, that, was, that was the kind of growth we were seeing. Yeah, you mentioned 2004 being an inflection point. I, I was curious, uh, well, I'm now curious about why 2004, but I'm also curious about the growth curve of sunlight and power uh, over time. And how much, just for those who aren't familiar with your company at all, just how much you guys have installed since inception? I'm sure that's a number that you've tracked. 
I don't actually track it that closely. Uh, we, we do go and look at it on occasion, and I know it's in the several thousands. But, you know, right now we're as, almost as big as we've, we've ever been, uh, which is about 70 people. I think we've been up to 80 in the past. I'm doing this for my soul. I'm doing this for because I, I, I believe in it and it's what I want to do. I'm not doing this to get rich. I'm not doing this to be famous. I'm doing this because it's what I, what I want to do for the, for the planet and I want to leave a legacy. And so growth for its own sake to me is it, I've never been interested in. And that's why, you know, looking at the kind of numbers that people are putting up the megawatt numbers, you know, yeah, we, we keep track of our megawatts, but we don't, we don't pay that much attention to them. In the scale of, of businesses out there, I, I know I've been a little surprised thinking we're, we're just a small company, but we're still in the upper numbers. You know, we're, we're well above the 50th percentile in terms of solar companies, in terms of our, our size. In terms um, of overall installed megawatts. Or annual sales or whatever, whatever number you want to look at. We do reasonably well in that. And, and for me, that's this might be the you know sort of the right size for our company in the sense that we are big enough that we can support the management infrastructure needed to run efficiently. And also we can then have enough business to support that infrastructure. There's sizes of business. If you want to talk about you know entrepreneurial growth, I think we were very fortunate that we got through a size that could be kind of a killer size for a company, which is when you get to a size that you really are not operating efficiently without a mid-level management of some sort, but you're not big enough to support that mid-level management. So you've got to push through that size range or you could, you, it could kill you, you know? And I, I've often thought about this vaguely. I've never sat down and sort of figured out the math of it, but I do know that in 2000 ish, we had about six or seven employees. And by 2004 or five, we probably had 30. And I think getting through to that 30 range was an important number to push through and get bigger than that, because I think that's my sense of it is that's probably the range where, you know, where I can't do everything myself. You know, when we started, I was up on the, I was selling the systems. I was designing the systems. I was getting the permits. I was up on the roof installing. I was commissioning. I was, we didn't even call it commissioning back then, but anyway, I was starting up the system, turning it on and fixing the leaks. And I was doing all that. So that's one size. And then when you're, you get big enough that you've got people doing that for you. Well, then now, now you're managing those people. How many of those people can you manage before you have to hire somebody else, you know, to manage those people for you, because that's too much for you to do when you're doing the books, doing the sales, doing the engineering. So I, I backed off just just doing engineering. Eventually, by by around 2000, I just uh, of the original four, I was the only remaining co-owner. I had a partner who had actually bought the shares off of one of the original partners, and then by about 2000 two or three, I had another different partner who bought him out. And then I bought that partner out. So uh, it wasn't until around that time that I was the sole owner of the business. 
just maybe a lucky coincidence that the industry was growing at such a pace when my company needed to grow also at a high rate that we got kind of carried along on that wave and we made it through through the dangerous size range. After 42 years, you clearly have established a legacy in the solar industry. You clearly have built a business that is uh, is going to outlast you. I just wonder, as a leader, what is the secret of your success? What I really believe is the secret to, to the, my success is that, and this, this actually wasn't always the case. It happened in around 2000, 2001, when my, when my final partner basically came to me and said, I'm, I'm burned out. I can't keep doing this work. We were still doing passive solar projects. So we're doing solariums and sunrooms as passive solar uh, heating systems for homes and that type of thing. It was driving him nuts. He wanted to be back into doing solar hot, hot water or PV. And uh, he finally said, I can't keep doing this. Ironically, if he'd hung on another year or so, we by that time con- had transitioned back into completely 100% PV and thermal and just jettisoned the whole sunroom side. But at that moment that he decided to leave, I became the new hiring guy because I had been relying on Rod to do the hiring because most of the hiring was field. We made some amazingly bad hires. He, 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 and I, he and I, and I'm going to put it mostly on Rod because, for example, he's the one that hired the guy that lived in the same, Rod was living on a boat at the time by choice. He hired a guy who was hanging around the harbor and also living off the boat. Both of them were living off these boats, I think, illegally. But this is a guy who, it turns out, was a guard for Ceausescu. For those of you that don't remember Ceausescu, uh, he was a dictator in Europe. I, I can't even remember if it was Hungary or Czechoslovakia, who was eventually murdered. <laughs> and he was a guard for this guy who is totally despised around the world. And he escaped over to the U.S. As far as I know, he wasn't even here legally. Here's a guy who, who we hired into our company <laughs> to, to head up our service group. I actually ended up having to hire a private detective to catch him stealing from us, which he was doing. I had a few very scary nights thinking about him because I knew he had a machine gun on his boat because that's what Rod told me he did. But we intimidated him more than he intimidated us, I guess. And he went away. Anyway, but I, I, I decided that we needed a better hiring process at that point. And uh, I started, uh, I, I actually hired Patch Garcia, who is, who is off and on been with us, and she's with us uh, even today, who did a wonderful job helping me vet people. She's a great recruiter. The secret is that we hire for attitude first and aptitude second. That's the way I like to put it. If people are not committed as much as I am committed to this industry and to what we do, they shouldn't be working here. And we need to we need to get that straight right at the beginning. And which is one of the reasons that this company can be an employee-owned company without me worrying about it. Because everybody that's here has been vetted to their commitment to the mission of the company from the get-go. And that takes care of so many problems when you think about it. What kind of employee problems are you going to have 
when everybody is as committed to the mission of the company as you are. So, I mean, you can't be perfect with that, but we, we try to, we try our best. And uh, I think that's, if there's any advice I would give anybody is establish your company culture and stand by it and don't waver, don't shortcut, because it only takes a couple of folks who are sowing negativity in your business to really change the whole culture. Hey, Warrior, I just wanted to quickly let you know about an opportunity that I think some of you might value. You might already know that I do coaching for entrepreneurs, founders, executives, and increasingly, folks who are in a major transition in their life or career. I only generally open up spots for coaching about once a quarter, and I try to keep the roster pretty small. But after some inquiry recently, I sat and thought a bit, and I've realized how much I really do enjoy the coaching side of my business. So for the next two weeks... I'll be opening up a couple of coaching spots. I haven't decided exactly how many, between two and four. And naturally, I wanted to offer it here on Suncast Tribe first. If you'd be interested in exploring this with me, would you please go to mysuncast.com, click on the Work With Me button in the menu, and fill out that application. I'll only be accepting a few people to add to the coaching roster this quarter. i got to keep it small so that I can focus on my other businesses, but I will be closing this opportunity for applications on may 24th so if you've ever considered hiring a coach and you'd like to explore if now's the right time if you might want to work with me please do go click on that work with me button fill out the application i'll set up some time for us to discuss it and i look forward to chatting with you soon solar warrior Incredibly intuitive and user-friendly, FTC Solar's Sundat software makes creating project layouts seem like playing Tetris for utility-scale solar. With detailed DC electrical design, civil analysis, and no system size limits, Sundat is the industry's most powerful design automation software. Did I mention that it automates tracker layout optimization, iterating on complex scenarios of GCR, module strings, backtracking, and more? If you are tired of waiting for design automation to catch up with utility project layouts, then sign up for your free trial of Sundat today. Just click on the Sundat logo at mysuncast.com. So you mentioned actually there, Gary, and I want to gloss over it, that Sunlight and Power is an employee-owned company, which is a new spin on the story of Sunlight and Power. Tell me about the decision to sell the company to the employees, effectively creating an ESOP. There aren't a lot of those in the solar industry these days. There aren't a lot of those in any industry these days. Yeah, this is something that you mentioned my wife, and I, I have to, I always need to give her credit. I mean, literally, you can imagine the solar doldrums were hard time, right? 85 to 2000. But we've had plenty of hard times besides that. We really needed, as a family, we were married in 81, and as a family, we needed someone with a real job, <laughs> to, you know, to bring in a real paycheck. And so she worked for the University University of California for 36 years before she retired, and uh, her contribution is is existential to this business. Without her being there when times were tough for for Sunlight and Power, I would have been forced to just give it up. And by the way, my wife is still on our board of directors with me. By about 2003, I also have to admit that that Barbara, my wife, Barb, is uh, has for probably the last 15 years been prodding me to, because uh, I have kind of a workaholic, you know, prodding me to get a life. And um, 
you know, figure out a way to, to decrease the amount of hours I put in here. And, and 2003 was the year I first came across the concept of the ESOP. It was actually from a customer of ours that we put a pretty good sized uh, PV system in for, and he owned a natural grocery in El Cerrito, Bob Gurner. And he had just got 100% ESOP. So he said, hey, I just sold the company to the employees. And I thought, well, that's a brilliant idea. And something that my wife would support because she would love to see me, you know, get out of the business eventually. At that point, I was about 50 years old. So, so it was, you know, it's worth starting to think about succession. And so I started looking into the ESOP back way back then. And uh, it turns out you have to be of a certain size and volume of business and profitability for an ESOP to make any sense. And we weren't, we were not there in 2003. So I put that off. I looked at it again in uh, 2016. I was actually pretty much ready to pull the trigger in 2016, but my bank stepped in and said, oh, gee, we can't, we can't guarantee that your loans will survive this change because you know, these loans are guaranteed by these outside federal agencies and we don't know what they're going to say. So they basically stopped me in my tracks, which was totally a, a surprise because I had had many conversations with them prior to that about this change. And they had never told me this was going to happen like this. So anyway, eventually, we finally pulled it off last year, 2018, created the employee stock ownership plan. I actually created the plan in 2016. And I actually created a plan in 20, 2003 and then modified it in 2016, perfected it in 2018. So uh, essentially, at that point, our, our employees were now um, technically were 100 we're 100% employee owned. Um, there's obviously, there's a buyout period. And my wife and I are carrying the note for the, because the company has to buy itself from us. So um, we're still relying on the company to be profitable because if it isn't, we will not get paid out. So I'm still, I'm still here and still an active part of it. But um, I think it's a tremendous, and it goes back to my earlier conversation about hiring for attitude is that, that, that the people here are thrilled to be owners. And uh, I think it's really, it really helps to fulfill on my commitment to them to reward them for, it's kind of a cliche, but I could not have done this without them, right? I mean, there's no way any business owner, in my personal view, having been one for many years, I think it, you're fooling yourself if you try to say, I did this. Is if you have employees, that is, and if you're you're a sole employer or a sole, a sole owner of a business, then yeah, maybe you can create all your wealth for yourself. But otherwise, you're relying on the labor and intelligence and knowledge and commitment of others, and you need to recognize that and not try to take credit for everything that goes right in your company. And what better way to uh, to reward the people who've who've built this business? than to make them co-owners. The solar industry is no different from most industries these days. Folks tend to stay in a company kind of like a carousel for 18 months to 36 months. I remember very specifically more than two dozen sidewalks with Eric Nyman, 2008, 2009, 
And Eric had been at Sunlight and Power for a while at that point. And I remember meeting Jesse Quay and thinking, gosh, this young guy is over at Sunlight and Power. Like, what's, what do they got that, uh, that some of the new companies don't have that's got this, you know, got this young guy? But you look at that was 10 years ago. Jesse and Eric had both been at your company how long? 15 years now? 15, 16 years. Yeah, um, yeah. Like, literally grown up in the company. The most remarkable thing I think about the, the early days when, when we just just out of the blue started up this company, I, I, I couldn't I never could imagine that that what I was creating at that moment was gonna ultimately we've probably gone through in spite of as you say, we have great longevity, but we also have turnover. And almost everybody that comes through this company and leaves, they almost always stay in solar and go somewhere else. And often they come back to us. I have double boomerangers. I have people that have left twice. They've gone away and in, increased their knowledge base, and then they come back again. To me, that's the greatest indicator that we're doing something right. goes back to that testament of what you said, of what your secret to success is, building the right team, having the right company culture, inserting the right values, being in it for the right reason. There's a number of folks I know who interned at Sunlight and Power. Scott Muller, good, really close friend of mine who has a successful solar company living right there in Berkeley, and you've known him for years. You guys did the solar on his parents' house. It's really interesting to see how one company can be so tethered to the industry. And frankly, there probably are a lot of folks outside of the, of the, the California industry who've never heard of Sunlight and Power, and they're hearing about this for the first time. But this is really a barrier institution. I am surprised often when people that I've never met know who I am or know who my company is. So apparently there is some knowledge out there in the <laughs> world about the company, but we're, we're very provincial. We're very local. We don't venture too far out of the Bay area. We only venture out of the Bay area at this point when our customer pulls us out to of the Bay area. Let's say we have a customer who has a project that they're building in Southern California or something. Well, we absolutely will say yes to that. If they want PV on their system in LA, we want to do it for them because we want to keep them as our customer. So we do, we do projects. Uh, I think we did one project in Washington state. I know we did because I had to get an engineering license in Washington state in order to sign the plans. That's kind of about as far as we've ever ranged. I don't, really know that much about what's going on in the rest of the country, except through my affiliation with Amicus, which is our, our co-op buyers group that uh, I don't know if you know about that. I know about Amicus, but why don't we talk about it? Can you tell us about the formation of Amicus and how that works? Actually, it starts with a SunPower dealer meeting where originally three or four companies started getting together, and this was about 2006, seven when Solar City was starting to really become a major force and uh, people were getting scared. People were going like, well, you know, they're, they're going big fast. They're going to go get private money. They're going to swamp us. They're going to be able to buy equipment cheaper than we can. How are we going to survive? It's sort of like how did Ace Hardware survive when Home Depot and Cole and all these other companies showed up? Ultimately what came out of it was two things. One was, well, we can join together and become a national company by doing a, a merger with some of these companies, or we can create a buying co-op that gives us buying power beyond any one of the individual companies. This little group had formed in a previous meeting. I found out about it and I kind of elbow, elbowed my way in. I said, I want in on this. 
So there were like five of us at that point, five companies, three of the companies together said, okay, well, let's see if we can pull off a co-equal merger of our three companies there. One was in Ohio, one was in North Carolina, one and us in California. And so we got, went down the road, very far down the road of trying to merge our businesses. So this again goes, goes back to that constant, okay, what's my succession strategy? And this would have been a good one because I was not going to be CEO. I didn't want to be CEO. I've never been trained to be, to be a CEO. I'm an engineer. We had one of the other co-owners who really liked being CEO and seemed to be doing a good job of it. So we said, okay, you can be CEO, I'll be CTO. And that gave me a, a smaller role. So I thought that would, that would all have worked out. And it would have worked out actually very well if two out of the three companies didn't have lost years the year that we tried to do this. And we were one of them. We, didn't, we did not make money that year, but the real killer was the CEO. His company had a horrible year. So that pretty much put a kibosh on that plan. But at any rate, at the same time, three out of the five companies said yes to trying to merge. The other two said no. And folks from that other group said, well, why don't we just work on the co-op buying group part of it while you guys work on the merger. And then if the merger works out, well, maybe we can then merge with you guys. And then if the co-op buyers club works out, you can join that. So that's where Amicus began. And it was modeled on uh, like True Value and Ace Hardware, which are in fact co-op buying clubs. They are not uh, independent franchises or corporations. They're, co- they're, they're co-ops. That's what we did. So we now have over 50 Amicus members across the country. So we're, we're essentially a, a countrywide organization now. Well, you've been a part of, as, as we've discussed here, some amazing historic growth in the solar market. I'd love to hear what you believe is the next frontier from where you sit. Where do you see our industry going? Conquering the world, I think. I say that a joke, but I think that ultimately I, my dream for many, many years has been to, you know, stand on my roof and look out and see solar on every roof I can see. I, I think that, you know, that dream has been realized in, in certain countries like Israel, where that actually did happen with solar hot water. In our country, we're, we're, you know, we're not anywhere near there yet, but I do think that that's what, that's my vision that's what I would, that's what I see happening. And I think it is unfortunately necessary. I mean, much more so than when I founded the company, I didn't think at the time, I didn't realize at the time how critical it was going to become that literally everybody who can possibly have solar must have it so that we can get rid of fossil fuels. It it was not such a crisis at the time. But now it is. And so that means that we need to figure out how to build, how to work the grid in such a way that it works, which is definitely a challenge, which means we have to have smart storage uh, associated with our PV. And that's where we, we must go. You know, in the next 10 years, we're going to see a huge, huge upsurge in local DG storage, as well as, you know, centralized PV, you know, the utilities are going to continue to to push for that. I see electrification clearly, you know, zero carbon is the way we have to go with all of our infrastructure. 
electric vehicles and EV chargers, uh, you know, everywhere. You literally, you really will need at least half of the parking spaces out there and all the parking lots will need to have uh, EV charging available at some point. If you're going to drive electric vehicles reliably, you have to know, you have to have, no, have, have confidence that there's going to be a place to plug in when you get to the end of your charge. I've, I've been driving electric for 19 years. I had my first electric vehicle was a Ford Ranger EV uh, factory built. Uh, in 2000. Great little truck, but it only had a range of 35 miles, which would get me to the only service, you know, to lithium Ford in Concord from Berkeley was like at the end of the range. So if something went wrong with my charger or anything like that, I'd have to get towed just to get service. So I got rid of that. I got a RAV4 2001 then I got another one, 2002 uh, RAV4. So we have two. We still have those two uh, RAV4 EVs. And now I'm driving a 2013 RAV4 myself. So anyway, so I, I, I'm very familiar with driving uh, with, with range anxiety and driving, you know, planning my trips. And it's like second nature to me now. I don't, I don't even think about it. But I do think about, well, I'm, I can't use the... I can't use the RAV4 for this particular trip. I have to use my wife's car, which is an EV hybrid. Honda Clarity. So it's got about a 55, 50 mile range on electric and then it switches over to gas backup. So, you know, you just have to pay attention, but I, I am ultimately we need, we need batteries to get smaller, lighter, less expensive, which they all are going in those directions. Uh, all of those directions, just like PV has been improving batteries are going in the right direction as well. So ultimately we're, we're all going to be driving EV and, and pretty much, Ten years from now, I would say everybody's going to have an EV. You won't be able to avoid it. You'll, you, it'll at least be a hybrid. There won't be a choice. If in ten years you're making a choice about a car because you choose to own a car, then I, I agree with you. It will be a, yes. it will be electric. Yeah, you've had a full forty plus years. One company you have in many ways brought it out of the ashes a, f- a few times. If you had to start this company in 2019, is there anything that you would do differently today? I most certainly would fail. <laughs> I tried to I've never, I never heard that answer. That's <laughs> that's not what I do. You know, a lot of people. I've met a lot of people who just love to start up businesses and then grow them and spin them off or whatever. They you know they use them. It, what sort of goes with it is you're using the business as a tool to make money. That that's a kind of the mindset that I think is out there in many cases and a lot of cases is like, Oh, I'm going to IPO this and, you know, retire on the money. So, so if you want to build a company to last, that's, that's a completely different story and that's a long-term commitment. And so that's why I say, you know, I'm 66 now. So for me to start a business, anything like sunlight and power, you know, I, I have to think about, okay, what I'm, you know, what's going to happen in 40 years with my business. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be 106 years old. Do I really want to be 106 years old, you know, with my business? Well, not, not so much. So I've done that and that's good enough for me. I've fulfilled my commitment to my wife, which is 
when she dumped all of her retirement savings into Sunlight and Power, which she did, and she had a decent retirement with the University of California, so so it was it was a godsend for us at that time. Uh, I said, "You're going to get all this money back and then some." And thank God, I can actually, you know, I've been able to fulfill on that, or at least I'm close to to being there. You know, what would I have done without that? I, probably, I would have had to seek outside money, and. There's another area. Uh, my advice is not, you know, do whatever you can to stay away from. If, if, if well, if you want to build something to last that reflects your values and something that you want to, maybe your if your goal is to help your employees then to take it on and have it carry on into the future, stay away from outside money. It's it's not going to work. I, I've seen it happen. Many people that I've seen. In both in solar and in, in, in energy efficiency as well. I had a, a sort of an acolyte that started up an energy efficiency company in San Francisco. And, and he, he came to me with for advice at times. And he called me up and says, I'm, I'm going to get an outside funder. I said, don't do it. You know, it's going to ruin the company. And he did it. And within two years, they were gone. I saw it happen with a dot bomb. A lot of our really good employees, Carl Omele, who's been with us, oh God, 15, 16 years also in the field, came from the dot-bomb era where they had a successful company going, it got bought out, and, and whoever it was that bought out, their company basically just destroyed it. And, and that happens so often when you don't have a person who carries the company culture who leading the company, then, then you just lose all of your focus, in my opinion. So I, I would say have a plan that you can grow organically, grow slowly, grow from profits, and that's going to be the solid, that's going to be a solid business that lasts. Gary, I believe that readers are leaders and leaders are readers. And I'd love to know from your vantage point, looking back uh, or forward, what books have you given away the most and why? I read for mostly for the blow off steam. And so I, I mostly read like mystery thrillers and that kind of thing. So I don't give those away. <laughs> the books that I do give away are the one that I think is most important right now for us is called What the Heck is EOS? That's a, a book about the entrepreneurial operating system. Uh, you met I'm reading Bob Traction Kingry. right now. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. And you met Bob Kingry, his wife, Maria, who's another, there's another great team, by the yep. way, mm-hmm. of committed husband and wife. Uh, well, Maria is now a trainer in EOS, and it's, it's a really good system as you'll be reading in Traction. She actually doesn't recommend Traction. She thinks that you should move on to EOS. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you might want to talk to her about that. But it's it, it's just about, for those who don't know, it, it's a way of running your business that just systemizes a lot of things about what you do so that you can, you can operate consistently. You can have a consistent vision that is held throughout the company. You can all, everyone can know where you're going and how you're going to get there, what your core values are, what your core focus is, what's your 10-year target, what are your critical commitments for the next quarter, all of these types of things. Just It just really helps you to stay organized and, and run the business in a logical, uh, organized manner. That's one. Uh, we're also uh, getting into lean. Um, my, C, my new COO 
uh, is a very strong proponent of lean, which is basically, it's basically the, you know, for those that don't know, that's kind of the Japanese way, the Toyota way, they call it. The book that we're working on right now is by Nicholas Modig. Uh, resolving the efficiency paradox. So it's it's all about process and, and flow of your business systems and and so you drive you drive inefficiencies out of your out of your systems. So that's a great uh, great one. Another one that I go back to on occasion is the five dysfunctions of a team. So that's that's another one that, that is a good touch point. Gary, I totally appreciate that. I love those recommendations. I'm definitely going to look into the, 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 this is lean. I'll find that book. Of course, we link to them always over on the blog. Penultimate question here, Gary, what one thing do you do consistently that you feel yields the greatest impact or results in your life? Oh, that's a great question. Cause you say in my life and not just my work. And that points out that life work balance is, Something uh, I guess if that be maybe my third touch point that I might have mentioned during this interview. Make sure that your team and we call our we call our people our team, not our employees. Make sure your team has a, a good life work balance. And uh, we, we started doing that before people started talking about life work balance. But it is valid. It's a valid point. I, I think for me, my life work balance is. For example, try to make sure I work from home at least one day a week. So that's, for me, that makes sure that I have a little bit more connectivity with home because during the week, um, you know, I'm pretty much, we we've decided when my wife retired, we decided to move out of the immediate Bay Area into this, the West Coast Sonoma County, where we're, which we're up in the uh, coastal redwoods. And so it's, unfortunately, it's a, you know, it's an hour and a quarter drive, when you add that onto my day during the work week, I'm not spending a whole lot of time with my wife at home. (laughs) That just doesn't give me enough time. I do try to spend at least a day a week uh, working from home. Not that I'm not working, um, but in fact, um, I am you know, and, and my wife, you know, very often just clears out because, you know, she doesn't, she can't stand it listen to me talking on the phone all day anyway. So, you know, it's not that I'm there just to be with her, but I'm there to be at home and support, support her in, in whatever ways needed as necessary. But also it's great quiet time for me, you know, being at work, you can get a lot done, but I can, I find I can get a lot more done of the type of work I need to do. And this isn't true for everyone. But I, I think you find that, for example, you know, our engineering department, our engineers can can work from home as easily as, as from here. However, I don't think it's a wise thing in most cases for, for people to be away from the office too much because there's a huge amount of interactivity that is only available by being just down, you know, a, a couple of desks away from someone where you can pop in and say hi and you know, get a quick question answered. It increases the rate. It increases the effectiveness and the, the fluidity of the team and the productivity, in particular, in between the sales and engineering teams. Gary, before I ask you the final question, I'd love to know, is there one place that uh, in particular people can find you? Is it LinkedIn or where's the best place for folks to reach out if they wanted to get to know you or to ask you questions? I am on LinkedIn. I have my best way to reach me is my email, which is very simple, gary at sunlightempower.com. That's always the best way to reach me. Yeah, and that's all one word, sun, light, and power. 
I'll link to both of those in the show notes. Well, let's end today with a bold prediction, Gary. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Be aware that the Chevrons, the Exxons, the Shells, those are renewable energy companies of the future because they're not going to be selling oil and they're not going away. So what are they going to do? They're going to do what they already know how to do, which is sell energy. So they're going to be either our partners or our competitors. We're actually having this conversation right now uh, on a project with, with Chevron where we've got some elements of our new employee owners are saying, hey, should we be doing business with Chevron? And my answer is absolutely yes, because they are the renewable energy company of the future, whether you like it or not, whether you like what they're doing or not. Same as doing business with PG&E. That's, I guess, something that maybe a lot of people are not quite tuned into that I can lay claim to that prediction. Well, I've never heard it said quite that way, and I really appreciate it. Be aware that fossil fuel companies of today are the renewable energy companies of tomorrow. They'll be either your partner or your competitor, you choose. Gary Gerber is president and founder of Sun, Light, and Power, a mainstay not only in solar, but in the Bay Area and Berkeley economy. Happy to have you join us here on Suncast at long last. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Nico. Great talking to you. Well, thanks a ton for sticking around all the way to the end, Solar Warrior. If you've loved this episode as much as I loved putting it together for you, I really want to hear the takeaways that you have from hearing how Gary built such an iconic business with faithful employees and clients. Would you mind posting your thoughts on Twitter and tagging me? Oh, also over on LinkedIn, where I've had a lot of engagement lately. I'd love to hear from you. You can find all the social media links at www.mysuncast.com. Scroll to the bottom of the page where you'll find those links. And do also please give Gary a shout as well. Would you also mind if you're listening to this and you haven't already subscribed, if you would subscribe and rate to the show. It's one of the ways that others can find our show and It's one of the best ways that you can tell me thank you for putting the show into your earbuds. But hey, since you're probably going to go over to the website, mysuncast.com, you will be able to check out more about today's guest and past episodes by clicking on the listen link. That'll take you to the episodes page and you'll scroll down through the show notes. You can see social media and website links and other goodies covered in each and every episode. Lastly, I do hope you'll check out our Suncast Tribe, which coincidentally I launched about a year ago, where you can learn more about my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. Click on that member button to learn how to gain access to our uncut interviews and tribe exclusives that don't make it into the public Suncast feed. And I apologize to those who are already members. I have tapered a bit here as I've been traveling of offering more into the tribe. But what I can tell you is that for the rest of 2019 and beyond, uh, the Suncast tribe is going to take on an increased place in the in the realm of what we are working on of course if you subscribe to the newsletter then you'll be notified when our next episodes are out or perhaps where i'm going to be traveling next you know i'm so happy that you've chosen to be right here with me this week remember you are what you listen to so thanks again for showing up solar warrior it's half the battle